Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode nine of Push Dose EMS, uh, brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcha. And as usual, joined by a motley crew of representatives from the county, uh, going down my list just to say hi to everybody, QA Supervisor Linda Matrish. Welcome, Linda. Welcome, everybody. Uh, county System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome, everyone. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Podra. Welcome, Dan. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, EMS Fellow, Dr. Luke Grover. Welcome, Dr. Grover. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Assistant Medical Director for Education, uh, Dr. Matt Chin. Welcome, Dr. Chin. Thanks for having me. Our other Assistant Medical Director for QA, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, everyone. Uh, so welcome, everybody, to Episode 9 once again. Uh, today's discussion is going to focus primarily around uh, a bit on excited delirium, as well as our use of ketamine in the field. Uh, for a variety of different uses. Uh, but as per usual, uh, before we deep dive into the topic too much, uh, let's grab some quick updates. So I'm going to tap on Dan quick for any system updates. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I'll be brief today. Um, we're looking at call volume in relation to uh, EMS transports and also COVID interactions. And it looks like over the past few weeks here, we've seen a pretty steady increase in uh, isolation alerts. So please continue to communicate those to EMS comm. They've been doing a pretty good job of uh, asking any follow-up screening questions for clarification. And then uh, also our transport volume is starting to um, not sharply increase, but steadily increase. So um, you'll start seeing some operational plans that we've got uh, prepared and ready to implement. A lot of you are familiar with the, the ARB program that we put in place earlier this year. Um, that's in our back pocket as needed. And then also a numbered notice is going to be sent out, uh, should have already been sent out by now, um, addressing COVID-19 triage uh, for, some, for health systems. So take a look at those. Uh, and if there's any questions, reach out to your EMS liaisons and they can forward any of those uh, to us for clarification. Uh, one other update would be the Medical College of Wisconsin study with the Zoll cardiac monitors. Uh, still a start date is looking to be probably Q1 of 2021. Uh, there's some logistical things that they're working on in terms of the good old paperwork, uh, but just also uh, uh, getting the study uh, lined up all the way. So we're making sure we're really uh, efficient and also responsible in how we uh, implement that technology into the Milwaukee County EMS system. And of course, I always harp on the PPE, please practice good social distancing, hand washing and hygiene and also uh, compliance with mask wearing. Uh, even in the firehouse, um, we're seeing a lot of increase of uh, um, of transmission of disease in the area here. So, and I'm sure everyone's heard it. You're fatigued from hearing it all the time, but please, please, please make sure you're just very conscious of uh, how you're handling things and also wearing the PPE as appropriate on calls. And finally, you'll see a communication likely coming out from some of your fire department leadership that if you're interested in joining our core team, which is a community oriented regional EMS team, uh, there's ways to apply for that. Our EMT positions did get approved by the county board last week, so we are anxiously awaiting for them to post them, and then we will start uh, the recruitment phase for that, and there's currently 20 spots that would be available, so come and get it. Thanks, Jeff. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. Uh, definitely, unfortunately, a lot staying the same with the needs for PPE and the isolation alerts. Uh, a lot of nice changes coming up. 
Uh, to piggyback on Dan's comments about the Zoll study, uh, just a reminder that the pre-education for the stoplight pediatric pain study uh, education is out there on, on Target Solutions. Uh, the sooner we can get everybody through that, the sooner we can help work with the physicians on that study. So uh, be aware that that's out there too. And if you're able to get through that, that'd be great. Uh, so system updates, moving on to any medical direction updates. So Dr. Weston. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, first, as seems to always be the case lately, COVID updates. Uh, so things are not going great in the county, not going great in the state uh, or the country for that matter. So on a county level, uh, we are hitting record levels of uh, cases, uh, record levels of hospitalizations, hitting new records, it seems, every week. Uh, the most recent record increase was on Monday uh, and unfortunately seen a uptick in deaths as well now. Uh, as a system, we know that uh, increased cases, increased hospital uh, surges impacts our system as well. And so we do have a few plans in place uh, that our operations folks from all of our different fire departments, as well as the chiefs, as well as OEM uh, leadership put together, and that includes our regional response plan, as well as our dynamic triage plan. So uh, those are still uh, on the back burner ready if we need them, uh, but we can certainly dust them off and use them uh, at a moment's notice. So certainly working closely with the health systems, uh, working closely with the fire departments to understand how best to have good continuity of care for all of the citizens that, that we serve. Uh, speaking of citizens that we serve, uh, three of our departments are moving forward to provide ALS services in their communities. So we're working with them, working with the state on getting those plans going. So that's exciting for, for each of them and their citizens and for the county in general. Uh, in West Dallas in particular, we're moving forward the ET3 planning. Uh, West Dallas is going to be a bit of a pilot within a pilot. Uh, they've done an outstanding job on advancing this and, and OEM is excited to partner with them moving that initiative forward. Uh, we also have a few quality initiatives. Uh, we're gonna focus on one of those today, but uh, that includes uh, ketamine and, and restraint use, refractory V-fib, trauma airway, pediatric medication dosing, a few different fronts going on here, uh, spearheaded by Linda Matrich, as well as our uh, esteemed assistant medical director for quality, Dr. Engel. So uh, some exciting uh, movement going on there. Uh, Shannon from our data analytics is working on uh, getting together a data dashboard for EMS, similar to our COVID dashboard. We, we liked uh, all the data availability that we had there, hoping to translate that over to provide some uh, transparent and useful uh, and informative EMS data as well. Uh, finally, one last point before I hand it off to Jeff. Uh, the focus on today's podcast, as we know, is excited delirium and ketamine usage, specifically dosing of ketamine, uh, given that we've had several CQI cases with ketamine dosing adverse events. Uh, so I'd be remiss, we'd be remiss not to mention the controversy that has surrounded ketamine in the setting of agitation and excited delirium. This has been seen in several cities as well as EMS systems around the country. We as a system in Milwaukee County try to uh, evaluate all of our guidelines, all of our policies, our procedures, uh, and view them under a racial equity lens. And certainly this is no different. So while this podcast will focus on dosing, uh, we're well aware of the equity issues surrounding ketamine and uh, are in the process of reviewing this uh, and all of our practices in conjunction with our health equity subcommittee uh, to ensure that we can provide the best care for every member of our community.
So more on this to come for sure in uh, future podcasts, and I'll hand it back over to Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, terrific. Thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, yeah, so definitely, you know, some national news revolving around excited delirium, revolving around ketamine use. And so we wanted to take this opportunity uh, with this many degrees sitting on one meeting uh, to really kind of deep dive a little bit into uh, what is going on with excited delirium, uh, how we're treating it, what's our best approach for pre-hospital management, uh, and certainly the sedation use of ketamine. I know in a lot of situations, in a lot of educational settings, excited delirium is pretty much taught as they're acting out. Uh, they might be violent or difficult to control, so we sedate them and move on with our lives. Uh, so I wanted to take some time to really talk about what's going on with excited delirium, what that pathophysiology is, uh, and with this great group of physicians and, and uh, teammates here, uh, we think we want to try and tackle that. So to start off, I'm going to grab Dr. Chin, uh, who can kind of guide us down what's going on with patients in excited delirium, uh, how to recognize it, uh, and how to go from there. So Dr. Chin. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me. So I know that this is everyone's favorite part of the podcast, and we get to talk a lot about pathophysiology and all the things we forgot from, uh, you know, college and high school. Um, but in this case, uh, I'm going to make this very brief for us. So the pathophysiology of excited delirium is, is unfortunately just very complex and not really understood. So we could end there, but that wouldn't be very helpful in terms of understanding how to recognize uh, excited delirium. But, but in all honesty, the pathophysiology, again, not really under, well understood. Um, so what I am going to talk about is, you know, how do we recognize this? What's the incidence of this? And kind of, uh, kind of delve into that. And then again, I'll turn it back to, to my colleagues, Dr. Grover and Jeff, to kind of talk a little bit more about sedation. So, so what do we know about it if we don't know much about the pathophysiology? What we do know is that uh, it's a combination of kind of delirium, which does have a very specific diagnosis. So if you look up in kind of the psychiatrist manual of information called the DSM, it talks about delirium being this constant state of defined disturbance of consciousness. So this reduced clarity of awareness of the environment, not, you know, having the inability to focus, uh, you know, to sustain or shift attention. It's kind of develops often over a short period of time, again, usually minutes to hours, uh, and it can fluctuate throughout the day, and it's not accounted for by underlying dementia. So we know that, um, you know, elderly patients in particular have, you know, chronic dementia, um, where they may reflect some of these, but really delirium is this kind of temporary state where these uh, people have this kind of, again, disturbance of their consciousness. Um, so that's what we talk about. In excited delirium, you, you combine the delirium portion with uh, some sort of psychomotor agitation. Um, so that's the excited portion of this. So what's the exact incidence of this? Again, it's kind of hard to determine. And a lot of this is challenging because there's no consistent uh, standardized definition. So what I'm going to challenge us to do here is to really try to build the definition for us and try to recognize what those characteristics are so that we can have our own kind of, uh, you know, mental decision point on whether this patient meets some criteria of excited delirium. So what do these patients often demonstrate? So we know that they demonstrate oftentimes associated drug use, in particular stimulants. So a large proportion of patients uh, have co-ingestion with either cocaine, methamphetamine, PCP, or other kind of uh, stimulant uh, substances, which can kind of precipitate these types of events, in particular can increase the mortality associated with excited delirium. Cocaine, again, in specific, is well known to be associated with excited delirium. 
Um, but outside of just simply substances, we know that there's psychiatric illnesses that are associated with this. So that's the second largest kind of cohort of patients who experience excited delirium in both cases and deaths is uh, people who have concomitant psychiatric, psychiatric illnesses. Um, so some of the literature would cite, you know, a cessation of uh, medications that patients might take. But again, the mechanism in the pathophys is not exactly understood. We just know that uh, a large percentage of these patients who experience excited delirium have a concomitant psychiatric illness for which they're either treated for or maybe are stopping treatment for abruptly. Um, like we talked about, again, kind of it's a combination of this delirium and psychomotor agitation. Uh, in particular, there's some features that we often see associated with these patients. The most common feature that we see with patients is often a pain tolerance. So this extreme pain tolerance, oftentimes, uh, you know, anywhere from 80 to 100% of patients um, who have experienced excited delirium have this increased pain tolerance. Uh, tachypnea is often seen in these patients as well. Um, sweating, agitation, obviously a part of the definition there, um, and tactile hyperthermia. So upwards of 90 plus percentage uh, of people with excited delirium have hyperthermia or agitation and sweating and tachypnea and pain tolerance. Some um, slightly less um, kind of common things that you might see are kind of this unusual strength, um, these kind of lack of tiring. Again, those are still relatively common though. Some of the literature would suggest anywhere from 70 to 90% of people have kind of this lack of tiring and unusual strength. Um, oftentimes, you know, as is seen, um, these people can be inappropriately clothed. So we've seen, uh, you know, the graphic pictures on TV of uh, nude people. Um, so again, about, you know, anywhere from 50 to 80% of the time, we can see some sort of, um, you know, clothing uh, related issue um, that can be uh, a part of this. Uh, and then there's this very strange kind of less than 10% uh, chance of patients having some sort of weird like mirror or glass attraction um, as well. So those are kind of the other things that we consider there. Um, in terms of kind of when death occurs related to excited delirium, again, we don't have great um, understanding of what mortality is truly associated with this, again, based on the fact that we don't have a constant definition of what this is, but some people would estimate maybe around five to 10%, so a decent mortality associated with this condition for those that are truly experiencing excited delirium. Uh, of those patients who um, experience a cardiac arrest associated with this, we, um, again, post-mortem exam often doesn't show an exact cause. Um, characteristics that we've seen associated with this are often male subjects around, you know, kind of 35 to 40 years of age. Again, destructive, bizarre, bizarre behavior, being involved in law enforcement-like situations. Um, again, suspected drug or um, alcohol intoxication along with concomitant psychiatric illness. Um, and again, the other things. So these unusual strengths. So those, again, uh, are related to the condition in general and also highly tied to the patients who develop um, cardiac arrest. From a, from a you know, clinical standpoint, we do know that these patients develop some hyperthermia like we talked about and some acidosis, so fluid resuscitation. In addition to all the things Dr. Grover is gonna talk about in terms of medications we can use to try to manage these. Uh, fluid resuscitation and kind of repletement is one of the other things we should consider because of kind of hypovolemia secondary to these kind of extreme um, agitation, hyperthermia and acidosis that can develop there. Um, again, part of the EMS portion of this is, again, as soon as um, this has been recognized as a medical condition, it's, and, you know, the role of our EMS providers really to intervene at that point and understand this is a, a medical emergency that needs to be handled appropriately. Um, so with that, again, those are some of the common things we see with this. Again, the pathophysiology, not well understood, um, but I'm going to turn it back to kind of Jeff uh, and then I, I'm sure Dr. Grover to kind of talk to us more about management of this condition. Uh Thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, 
yeah, there's definitely a lot going on there, and all of that's not quite understood yet. So uh, it's good to have some frame of reference to really work off of when we're trying to recognize this, trying to interact with patients uh, suffering from this condition out in the field. Uh, certainly, there there can be varying levels of um, you know of that excitement, of that concern for the patients uh, as they go through this process. And certainly with the uh, availability of the last couple uh, lectures that were put out by NAMI, and especially thinking about the presentation on um, verbal de-escalations and our ability to talk through uh, with our patients, the trying to calm them down, get them cooperative, uh, make a connection uh, without having to be too aggressively uh, invasive is great. However, in some of these circumstances, that's not really an option uh, and more you know, aggressive means of uh, restraint or control are necessary. And uh, so that's where I'm gonna grab uh, Dr. Grover to kind of dive a little bit more into um, how, when, where, why to use sedation medications uh, and then potentially some of the other uses for ketamine that we see in the system. So Dr. Grover. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Hey, everyone. So we're going to talk a bit about the different uses of ketamine. We'll talk about the indications, the different doses, and why the protocols are laid out the way they are, and the problems that you can run into when using ketamine. So first, really, why do we use ketamine at all instead of some of the other drugs that we have uh, available to us in the rig? And the answer here really focuses around the spectrum of patient responses that are predictably dose-dependent, as well as the favorable side effect profile relative to our other choices. And before we go into the uses and dosing, I wanna discuss these favorable side effects because it's important to fully understand what the expected patient response will be. And when we're talking about the relative benefits of ketamine, understand that I mean benefits compared to other medications that we use for mostly the same purposes. And this includes opiates like fentanyl for pain control and benzodiazepines like midazolam for sedation. So for ketamine, there are two primary traits that make it a good medication. First, it should not interfere with the body's respiratory drive. This is opposed to fentanyl and midazolam, which have this nasty habit of making people stop breathing. Ketamine is much less likely to make someone stop breathing. Secondly, ketamine generally has a favorable effect on heart rate and blood pressure and should actually increase both. Again, as opposed to fentanyl midazolam, which tend to decrease blood pressure. This makes ketamine potentially a better choice, for example, in hypotensive patients where you'd rather use a medication that can support blood pressure than risk dropping it more. Next, we'll move into some specifics on indications and dosing. Now, if you refer to the OEM protocols, you'll see that we have three different indications for ketamine and four different rows discussing dosing. And it's a little confusing, and hopefully we can clear it up a bit here. Remember, ketamine has a spectrum of predictable dose-dependent effects. Now at the low end of the dosing range, we have pain control, which is the first indication. And you might choose ketamine over fentanyl for a couple of reasons. First, the patient may be hemodynamically unstable, like a trauma patient, and you wanna provide pain relief while being cognizant of their low blood pressure, which is great care. Second, patients may have a history of opiate abuse and would prefer to stay away from opiate medications. Now, I want to be clear that opiate abuse history is not a contraindication to giving someone fentanyl, but just maybe suggest discussing it with your patient 
um, because you do have another option that's not an opiate medication in ketamine. And again, patient preference should mostly dictate this choice. So now that you've decided to give ketamine, how are you gonna give it? And the first question here is, do you have an IV or not? As you know, this is important because in your rig, you carry very concentrated ketamine at 100 milligrams per milliliter. Never give concentrated ketamine through an IV. And we've had a handful of CQI cases where this has happened. So if you're giving ketamine through an IV, never give it straight out of the vial. You have to dilute it first. Now to dose ketamine for pain by IV, it's the smallest dose you give because all we wanna do is relieve pain. We don't want any of the other central effects that can come with ketamine. So the dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram for a max dose of only 10 milligrams if you're using an IV. If you don't have an IV and we need to give ketamine intramuscularly, then things change a bit. And please refer to the medication app intramuscular dosing of ketamine, you do need to give the concentra concentrated medication directly. And the only reason for that is a practical one. You need the ketamine in a smaller volume because you can only give a few milliliters as an intramuscular injection. The other thing to remember here is that almost any medication you give intramuscularly needs to be at a higher dose to have the same effect because it's absorbed by the muscle much slower than it would be if given directly into the blood. So it also begins to be metabolized before the entire dose has a chance to have an effect on the body. Therefore, ketamine intramuscularly means a higher dose than IV, and the protocol calls for a five times higher dose at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 50 milligrams intramuscularly. And again, that would be straight from the vial. In the pain dose range of ketamine, the effect should be similar to that of fentanyl. Their pain should improve. They may seem a little more sleepy, but should stay awake and should be answering questions appropriately. The next indication for ketamine is for airway sedation, and this is a medium dose. For sedation, it's given IV because basically anytime you should be sedating anyone, you should have an IV mostly for safety reasons. The dose for airway sedation is three times more than the IV pain dose, making sedation 0.3 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 30 milligrams of ketamine. In the sedation range of ketamine, the effects you'll see will be likely a very sleepy patient, but they should remain breathing certainly and likely be responsive to voice and stimuli. The last indication for ketamine is chemical restraint that Dr. Chin just discussed. And this is for agitated patients and really for safety situations. This is the large dose of ketamine and only given intramuscularly based on the assumption that the patient is too agitated to be able to place an IV. This dose is also given in the concentrated form straight from the vial at three milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 300 milligrams. This is a disassociative dose, meaning that the patient should become mostly unresponsive and asleep, but hopefully still breathing owing to the relatively safe side effect profile. This is a similar equivalent dose to what's used for rapid sequence intubation, and ketamine can also be used for anesthesia during surgical procedures. So this is really where you're getting into the high dose range. So the visible effect on the patient will be determined by the dose and indication. Otherwise, you will likely observe some tachycardia and hypertension. Again, these are expected findings with ketamine. And now that we've covered administration and dosing, I want to discuss how you can get into trouble with ketamine. Because while we use it for mostly its favorable side effect profile, it can have negative effects. 
Most important side effect is of course apnea. Ketamine can stop a patient's breathing, though it's less likely. This also happens in a dose-dependent fashion, but it's also more likely to happen if ketamine is pushed really quickly through an IV. So you always have to push ketamine slowly through an IV over a couple of minutes. Now the OEM IV doses are relatively small, again, a max of 30 milligrams when we're talking about sedation. So in theory, breathing should not be much of an issue. The problem is mostly when ketamine isn't diluted for IV use and then pushed quickly via the IV. This is where apnea most commonly happens. Smaller doses of ketamine can also have unintended effects if the patient has other medications or drugs on board. And this same concept applies to using fentanyl or midazolam as well. So just be cautious if you expect other drug use or if you've used other potentially sedating medications before ketamine. Other reactions include unintended, like relative disassociation at lower doses, which can happen in just certain patients, or again, if there's dosing errors. Also, patients who are coming down from ketamine can have what's known as an emergence reaction, which is basically some usually mild hallucinations and possibly mostly mild excited delirium, but this is unlikely to be seen just over the course of an EMS transport timeframe. Now, if you run into one of these bad situations, like pushing undiluted ketamine through an IV, just remember most likely the patient will be fine. However, it's important, again, with all emergent situations, you need to plan for the worst case scenario. Make sure the patient is completely monitored, including that end tidal CO2, because that will be your first indication that they're about to go apneic on you. And just get your airway equipment out so you can quickly intervene if you need to. In summary, ketamine has a dose-dependent effects and multiple indications and can be tricky to dilute. So refer to the medication list in the app and perform a full medication cross-check with your crew. Ketamine is relatively safe. It shouldn't have much of an effect on breathing or cause hypotension, but be ready to intervene because you know what the bad side effects are to expect with ketamine. Don't push ketamine straight from the vial into an IV. You have to dilute it first. And if an error is made or there's any indication that the patient is getting sleepy or less responsive, get them fully monitored and get them on that untitled CO2 to make it as safe as possible. And that's it from me. Thanks a lot, everyone. Jeff? Thanks, Dr. Grover. Yeah, just to reiterate, you know, certainly pain medications, anything with, you know, sedative effects, uh, you know, it just takes a second to throw that untitled on. Uh, makes your job a lot easier and then trying to gauge you know how much that chest is moving up and down especially now as we move into the winter months and people are going to be bundled up a little bit more so uh please 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 monitor your patient whenever we are uh sedating uh, as it's been alluded to a little bit uh as we've gone through there's been some changes been some updates to the guidelines there's more to come uh, in the near future uh and our QA team have been hard at work uh, looking at some updates, uh, making some changes, as well as doing their normal QA process. So uh, to start off, I'm going to grab Dr. Engel. Uh, he can take us through some of the changes, some of the work that they've been doing over there, and then we'll bring Linda in and take a look at some of the cases that have been happening a little bit more locally here around the county. So Dr. Engel. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate you sending it over to me. So over the last 21 months, our quality improvement and quality assurance team has done a really big deep dive into the use of ketamine uh, throughout our system. 
what we were able to identify was that ketamine was actually the second leading medication for medication errors that was sent to us uh, in our system. Um, looking at it, we had 12 cases that we reviewed. And of those 12 cases, nine of them were actually in regards to the use of ketamine for pain control. And of those 12 cases, we noted that there was one serious case where a patient went apneic due to a medication error and required bag valve mass for hypoxia and apnea. So we really did identify that ketamine was a pretty significant, had a bunch of uh, pretty significant medication errors throughout our systems. We wanted to kind of figure out why that was actually happening and what we could do to try to make it a little bit better. So we actually went through and we tried to review ketamine, uh, you know, from a process improvement standpoint. Um, and really looking at all the different options that are available nationally for the use of ketamine. And we actually looked at a couple things. We thought we talked about even eliminating ketamine altogether in our system. And, you know, we felt like it wasn't a really great idea as we believe that we have the best providers throughout the country. Um, and we think that they should be using medications that are indicated for the patients. We think ketamine has a role in the pre-hospital setting. And we think our providers are good enough to use this medication. So we decided not to do that. We considered just removing ketamine for the use of pain control and posterior sedation, meaning removing it from the IV dosing, as Dr. Grover alluded to, that's where you get your highest cases of apnea. And once again, we felt that our providers wanted to have this medication in their back pocket and that it was clinically indicated for patients. So we decided not to use it there. We talked about also removing it from IVIO doses um, as well. Um, we even talked about changing to a standard dose of ketamine, meaning that each person, whether pediatrics or adult, would be given the same amount of ketamine and it would not be weight-based. We felt this wasn't really applicable because, you know, ketamine really is a weight-based medication. And as Dr. Grover alluded to, this medication changes regards to side effects with increased and decreased amounts of medications. We felt that ketamine truly was a weight-based medication and standardized dosing probably wasn't the best option. We did also talk about trying to obtain uh, different amounts of ketamine in different vials, but this posed a really big logistical issue and probably opened us up even to more errors. We talked about going back to diluting it into 10 cc syringes, but once again, you know, we felt that that increased the amount of possibility for error as you get less exact with diluting ketamine into a 10 cc syringe as opposed to a 100 cc syringe. So what did we end up with after this whole review process? Well, we ended up with saying that, you know, our, cor our current processes and procedures for the use of ketamine are, are good. And we actually want to work through making them our providers better at using the current process that we have available. So we have a, the system-wide ketamine lecture that either you've seen or is on target solutions. We're dedicating this process, this single podcast to the use of ketamine. We're hoping that we can update all of the apps for all of our providers to make sure people have the updated information on the dosing for ketamine. And then in the near future, we're going to be really working on improving the medication list on the app to kind of divide out the use of ketamine to make it much easier for providers to understand what dose of ketamine and what indication of ketamine they're actually trying to click on. Because we recognize that can be a little bit much when you're opening up the um, medication app. So after this big improvement process and noting all these cases, uh, we really are hopeful that ketamine uh, usage in our system is only going to get better. We know it has a role in our system. And, you know, just so we all can get better on cases that we uh, have made mistakes on, I'm going to toss it over to Linda and she's going to walk us through three cases. I'll give you some commentary about where I felt that um, some, uh, some mistakes were made so we all can learn from each other. Thank you, Dr. Engel. Our first case is a ketamine for the use of patient restraint case. Um, it's a case of a patient that uh, was reportedly having seizure when the 
EMS units arrived, the patient was extremely combative, um, and it was decided that ketamine for patient restraint would be, um, was indicated uh, to try and further assess the patient. So they appropriately um, estimated the patient's weight and dose, which would have been uh, 190 milligrams. Uh, their intention, of course, was IM administration. Um, what they did is they administered the 190 milligrams. Uh, and if we look at the chart, we can see that the max dose is uh, 300 milligrams. Um, however, when the run was over uh, and they were reviewing the vial, they noticed that they had actually given uh, the entire 500 milligrams of ketamine uh, instead of the intended 190 milligrams. And um, what is great, though, is that they placed the patient on the Zolmonitor, noticed the sinus rhythm, monitored end tidal CO2, which was, which was normal, and monitored the SpO2 readings as well. Um, they closely monitored the, the patient en route to the hospital, and the patient did remain uh, stable. Uh, and they believe that the error was due to uh, reading the vial as containing 100 milligrams total instead of 100 milligrams per mil. Um, in addition, um, they admitted that the cross-check was faulty and led to administering that incorrect dose. And right in our medication cross-check, of course, we have the drug, the dose, the route, and um, also the volume in mills for the drug concentration. Um, Dr. Engel, what would you like to add to this? Yeah, thanks, Linda. Um, you know, this is a really easily uh, made mistake, especially in these um, really high stressful situations where you're trying to chemically restrain a patient for um, their safety as well as for the safety of providers, we can provide them proper care. Um, I would just caution everybody that in these chemical restraint patients to take an extra second and recognize that the initial dose is going to be the three milligrams per kilogram. Um, and then recognizing that we do have a second dose available at one milligram per kilogram on top of that. Um, and that first initial dose, they calculated the weight right, but really getting another provider and spending the extra 10 seconds to do a medication cross-check is really what's going to, um, you know, keep our patients safe. Um, because as we know, the more ketamine we give, the higher propensity for apnea. I did love that this crew once they identified the mistake rapidly and they did great monitoring of this patient throughout and there were no adverse events. But unfortunately, with those higher doses of ketamine, there, it's possible there could have been. Um, so really taking a couple extra seconds in high stressful situations to make sure we administer the initial dose of ketamine correctly um, and then being ready to use that second dose with once again using the medication cross check as well. Excellent. Thank you. Our second case is a ketamine uh, indication for pain management. Um, this was a 49-year-old male involved in a motorcycle accident um, who was complaining of leg pain and had a good CMS uh, during care. Um, this person stated to the crew that he really didn't want any pain management and um, the crew uh, decided that ketamine would be a good option for pain management for this patient due to his hesitation to wanting to receive any pain management at all. Um, they, uh, the patient's weight was 71 kilograms and they decided to give a quote, uh, quote small dose for pain, which they determined would be 0.5 mils and they um, did not provide any um, dilution. Um, they noticed after this medication was given that the patient did become slightly altered briefly. Um, 
and uh, they, um, they, prior to giving the pain medication, the ketamine, they also did provide non-pharmacological interventions as well. Um, and again, this uh, is a case when I think about pain management and ketamine um, with the dilution, um, you know, oftentimes we give additional doses of medication for pain relief. And um, I think, you know, thinking of this as it's, it may not be a one-time administration, you may be giving additional doses. And when you do this dilution, you may, you know, use that again for additional doses. Um, Dr. Engel, what would you like to add to this? Yeah, so when we reviewed this case, we really felt like the, you know, the crew's intentions were, were wonderful. They really wanted to treat this patient's pain. Um, and I, what we think that ended up happening was they pulled up the IM uh, administration amount, which, would, which indicates 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of your starting dose that's not diluted. And they interpreted it as um, like half a milliliter uh, of medication, which in this patient would be 50 milligrams or about seven times their initial dose, given they were a 70 kilogram patient at uh, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram should have been about a dose of about seven milligrams slow IV push for pain control. So I think the big things to take away is one, when you open up the app, make sure that you're on the correct um, indication and route for this medication. And then two, remembering just like Dr. Grover stressed multiple times throughout his portion that um, Ketamine, uh, ketamine should never be given in the concentrated form via the IV. It should always be diluted first. Um, and then performing a medication cross-check might have caught this one. Um, you know, when you get to that 50 milligrams, you're kind of in this middle ground of ketamine administration between pain control and between the sedation dose, which can get a little bit weird for patients and make them uh, have some really unpleasant side effects, such as an out-of-body experience, um, and also increase their, their risk of apnea um, when it's not really needed for sedation. Um, so, you know, I think the crew's uh, decision to use ketamine was correct. Uh, they just kind of went down the wrong uh, route and then missed that medication cross-check. Um, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And our third case is also related to uh, indications for pain management. Uh, this was a patient that was a complaining of severe chronic back pain. And the patient stated to the crew, or the family did, that they cannot have any opioid medication. And, you know, I think that we as providers will hear this, um, we'll have patients that express this to us um, at times. Um, so the crew decided that ketamine um, via IV was indicated. Um, they did a cross check, um, which apparently was uh, both medics misinterpreted uh, the dosing. Um, in this case, ketamine was mixed with a 10cc syringe, which uh, goes back to um, a way we used to dilute ketamine when we first began carrying it about six years ago. Um, so they, they estimated the dose, but diluted in the 10cc syringe and um, gave a second and third dose. And um, the, because they diluted in a 10cc syringe, they actually ended up giving, what, 10 times the dose, Dr. Engel? Yeah, just about. They did it. Uh, I think the patient ended up getting a couple hundred milligrams of ketamine um, as they gave about, you know, eight times the dose, eight times the dose. Yeah. So they got three doses that were incorrect, and they were all markedly elevated between six and eight times the actual dose indicated for the patient. 
What was great is that, um, again, they, in this case as well, they monitored in title, um, they monitored um, ECG rhythm, um, and they closely monitored uh, the patient en route to the hospital. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Dr. Engel? Yeah, I think this gets to why, it kind of shows exactly why we've moved away from diluting in a 10cc syringe. Um, with ketamine being such a weight-based medication, if you dilute it within a 10cc syringe, you have to be extremely accurate in your withdrawal of the correct amount of medication, likely even using those 1cc syringes to administer the correct amount. And sometimes to provide the exact weight-based medication for the patient, you end up having to remove like you're, you're messing around with 0.1 mLs of medication in one way or another, just as, because of how concentrated the medication still is in 10 cc's. Therefore, it really is important to always dilute this medication when given an IV in a 100 cc bag. It allows you with more wiggle room to make sure you drop the correct, correct weight-based dose, which is actually really easily found when you open up the medication administration tab and go to ketamine and you review the sliding scale on the bottom based on the patient's weight. You can get an exact dose down there for pain control. Um, so it really, really benefits the provider to dilute it in that 100cc bag to make sure that you're able to provide the exact weight-based medication to keep everybody, the patient safe, as well as to you know continue to do what's best on our end. Thank you. And um, I don't have this case listed, but I do recall another case and where uh, dilution was done, but then the whole um, the whole bag, the whole 100cc bag was given. So a reminder that after determination of the dose, dilution of the bag, there is drawing off the exact dose before the slow push administration. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I very much remember that that would be uh, if you were to do that, uh, just hang that whole 100 cc bag, you could end up giving 100 milligrams of ketamine, which is uh, often up to like 10 times the dose that we have maxed for our, our pain control dose. Um, so always remembering that once you withdraw the medication with a syringe from the vial, inject it into the 100 cc bag, mix it, and then withdraw it again prior to administering its slow IV push in the patient with you typically with, with another syringe is really, really important. And while we understand that there's a, a couple of steps um, that are extra for the administration of ketamine, we feel that this medication really has a, a place in taking care of our patients and is really important. Excellent. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Uh, thanks, Dr. Engel. Thanks, Linda. Thank you to everybody uh, for joining us today. I think it was a really great discussion. Um, starting with that excited delirium talk, uh, some recognition, uh, making sure everyone's kind of clear on what we do and don't know about excited delirium, and then really getting into uh, that ketamine usage for sedation, for pain control, uh, making sure that we're doing those medication cross-checks. And if an error does happen, making sure that we're monitoring our patients really closely. So uh, with that, again, I will thank everybody for joining us today. Uh, and I thank all of you out there for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. And on behalf of everybody, uh, enjoy your week uh, and stay safe out there. So thanks to everybody. See you next time.